You are listening to The Pulse, Rod Murray's e-learning tech podcast. Number 210, Brian Alexander on AI and education. Hi, this is Rod Murray. Welcome back to my podcast. Well, that little piece was a clip from a song that was created by artificial intelligence. It's called Utopian Prince, and it's from Juke Deck. You can create your own futuristic AI music at Juke Deck. Give it a try. Today's podcast episode is sponsored by D2L. You may know their main product, the Brightspace Learning Management System. I, of course, would only accept sponsorship from companies and products that I am very fond of. So please check out their website at d2l.com slash pulsepodcast to learn more. I also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My handle is Rods Pods. As always, I post links to the things we talk about on my show notes website at www.rodspulsepodcast.com. I had the pleasure recently to interview Brian Alexander. If you don't know Brian, I'm sure you'll get to like him. He's a futurist, educator, speaker, and writer. So we talk about AI and its impact on education. Brian also mentions his new book that's coming out shortly called Universities on Fire. So we discuss Brian's background and his current activities. We talk a lot about AI, especially generative AI, including ChatGPT, MidJourney, DALL-E, He mentions new jobs that may be brought about by AI, including what he calls an AI wrangler, somebody who's skilled at crafting parameters and prompts, or perhaps a bot manager. We talk about AI as a pedagogical tool for analyzing writing, perhaps, or an art to improve learning. Ultimately, we both see personalized AI bot tutors. I think that's where AI and education is really going to make an impact He talks about eliminating AI cheating, how to do that. He talks about ChatGPT as an instrument for playing the web, for example, as a role master for game simulation. Can AI explain itself? Of course, sources are very important in education. Of course, AI ethics and the need for fact-checking is very important to help combat deep fakes. He mentions military anti-AI technology and the use of AI for national security and much, much more. It's a wide-ranging discussion. We had a lot of fun. I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Brian Alexander. So Brian, this has really been a a pleasure, my pleasure to talk to you again. I was looking back on my uh, website and you've been featured in my podcast five times, believe it or not, but I swear I should should talk to you every, at least once a year, because you do so much. (laughs) Well, it's my pleasure to do that, and uh, it's always good to read you as well. Uh, so it's a it's a real delight to be back. Thanks, thanks. Well, uh, for now, people in our line of work probably know your name, but just in case they don't, why don't you give folks uh, your elevator speech? What what do you do? Well, sure. Uh, I'm a futurist specializing in the future of higher education. I'm currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University, where I teach a couple of classes in their Learning Design and Technology Master's program. Uh, I'm the author of four books right now, including most recently, Universities on Fire, a book about the future of higher education and climate change, as well as the award-winning Academia Next, which came out in 2020. Uh, I host a weekly video conversation about the future of higher education called the Future Trends Forum. 
Um, and in past lives, I've worked for a nonprofit working in education technology and collaboration, and I've been an English professor at a small college. Well, that's, you know, and it's a typical uh, academic. <laughs> no, you, you, you are well known to me and probably a lot of my audience. Uh, I first uh, met you, I think, uh, uh, around the uh, NMC's, uh, you know, f mm. future uh, report that they did every year. I know you were involved yeah, with those cool. that years yeah. ago. Yeah. So uh, what's... It meant a lot to me, yeah. And the fact that you put on uh, your Future Trends Forum so often is mind-boggling. You, 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 do you get any sleep? Not much. <laughs> I, I try to work as efficiently as possible, and I love what I do, but, but no, I, I don't get enough sleep. So um, I know you're up on the latest educational trends, and everybody's talking about AI these days. Uh, is that on, on top of mind these days? And, and if so, what, what, uh, are you, what, what are your thoughts around it? Uh, I've I've quite a few. Uh, I mean, we could we could think about it in two kind of overlapping terms. We could think about automation in general, meaning all of AI plus robotics. So this would bring in things like self-driving cars and drones. So that's that's one of the Venn diagram circles. And the other would be what I and others call generative AI, uh, AI tools that make stuff or help you make stuff. So think about ChatGPT right now or Bing's AI uh, chatbot. Or we could think about the AI art programs like Stable Diffusion, DALL-E, uh, Midjourney, as well as programs that help us write uh, and also make audio and coming up soon, making video and computer games. So uh, when I think about the former, I think about its impact on the world in general. So I wonder to what extent, for example, that we replace jobs uh, with automation, uh, but also to the extent that we invent new jobs uh, to account for it. So right now with ChatGPT, uh, as well as the art programs, there's definitely an art and skill in crafting parameters and questions just the right way. Uh, and that's a skill which can be taught. Um, so does that become an emerging job? Uh, I think of this as AI Wrangler. Um, but there's there's also questions of new jobs that may come up around automation. Uh, for example, uh, being able to manage lots and lots of competing bots or the question of ethics and AI. Uh, a third possibility is that we won't replace a lot of jobs, but that they'll work with us. Uh, so you and I may end up running software that takes care of podcast and webinar creation. And it doesn't replace us. We don't have a Rod Murray bot. Um, I mean, I wish we did so that we could have more, everyone could have more Rod Murray, but um, but uh, it's one that, that may help you find guests, that may help you facilitate conversation, that may help with production. Um, I, I think of this as a kind of cyborg future where people work with AI. I mean, if any of these three futures occurs, and one will probably several at the same time, that impacts higher education, where I work and where I think. Uh, how does it change our curriculum, as well as how does it change what we teach and how we teach it? Um, I, I think in terms of automation or generative AI, um, right now this is developing quickly and there's a lot going on. Uh, there's a kind of continuum of responses. Uh, on the one hand, we have people who say that, uh, uh, that AI or generative AI is working badly that it's a BS generator, that it's a hallucinator, uh, that it can easily be tricked into violating its protocols, that the writing quality is low. 
and that it may stay that way that the the very nature of large language models means that we're not going to see it improve that it's going to be refined to a degree but it's going to be uh, unreliable we also see people who say that the training mechanisms are unethical that is these are often trained on the whole world including copyrighted material and material that authors or creators gave no uh no permission to use uh, and in fact, using these tools is a way of training them without compensation and without any meaningful participatory role. Um, so there's that argument. There's there's also the the idea to simply ban uh, such AI. Uh, for me, the extreme form that I, I always keep in mind is the science fictional version that Frank Herbert uh, imagined in Dune, where he imagined a world where uh, artificial intelligence is basically a social taboo. Uh, he called it the Butlerian Jihad, and I, I, I think we are headed that way in some in some directions. Um, and that can play out in a classroom where an individual instructor bans the use of such tools, either at the hardware networking level or just through policy. Um, then there's also the sense, there's a kind of intermediate sense where uh, people in education think that generative AI is just not very good, but we can use that as a pedagogical tool. Uh, so, for example, to... Uh, if you're stuck writing um, to have an AI cough up the first draft and you might say, oh, that's terrible, but then you edit it and you get to work with it. And that's often easier than starting from a blank screen or a blank page. And I think there, there are also more optimistic takes um, which partake of other forms of, of pedagogy. For example, the idea of analyzing generative AI output and trying to learn from it how it works. So taking a look at mid-journey uh, image and try to try to suss out its composition strategy, try to figure out the sources of that image and how it responds to different parameters, looking at bland writing and for a class to talk about what makes it bland, you know, what makes writing actually stand out and pop. Um, and then you know, that can be a productive way for creating new stuff. There's also shifts in uh, assessment. There's the idea that we should change up assessment in general, um, perhaps moving to uh, offline assessment, either machines that are air-gapped or using paper and pencil or using oral uh, reports or oral uh, interviews. Um, and I, I, I think also there's the idea that on a more positive note, uh, Ian Bogost said that that ChatGPT for him is a kind of, it's an instrument. Um, he had this wonderful phrase where he said, it's an instrument for playing the web. Um, you know, that means you know, you're, you're drawing on this vast corpus of, of web content whenever you type in a parameter or refine a response. And it's kind of like just a way of playing the web, which is fascinating. And if this is the case, then this changes how we write in some ways, in which case teaching how we write has to change as well. Um, this is this is all raw. This is the present. I, I'm not extrapolating. I'm not forecasting here. This is right. just now. And and you asked a big question. I'm afraid I gave you kind of bloated answer. Um, but I'd, I'd be happy to take a few different directions if you like. No, no, that that was perfect. Uh, I guess uh, you know I've been playing with uh, some of these new AI tools and uh, just you know scratching the surface. Really, mostly Chat GPT and uh, Dolly and. But uh, one thing I noticed, uh, in fact, you'll probably be uh, uh, reading more of it uh, in my, my next newsletter. But, um, you know, once uh, I, I asked ChatGPT a question and I said, well, can you give me the reference on that? And it spit up five literature references, you know, because I promise, you know, my 
my uh, reading audience that I'm not just going to, if I use ChatGPT, I will certainly uh, give it credit and also uh, validate <laughs> that it's what it's saying is correct or not. Um, so, you know, whenever it comes to um, trying to figure out how AI does some things that it does, you know, it's, it's usually a black box, but I, I'm not sure... I think there's been some progress on having the AI explain itself and how it arrives at at some answers. Do you think that's in the offing? Do you, have you seen that yet? Well, just it's very funny you, that you mentioned the part about uh, references. And right over the past half hour, I've been part of a Twitter thread uh, arguing about this. Um, the that so, so quickly to distinguish Bing's chatbot uh, uses. Uh, live internet sources and it's able to reach out and provide links to that i haven't been able to test out how effectively that is right now but that seems to be the consensus whereas chat gpt seems to just kind of make up using predictive language uh sources and sometimes they're right sometimes they are wrong but look right uh and right now in this discussion we're having it seems like some of these uh titles seem to actually make sense um I, I think uh, in in many ways, that's one of the major problems that we have because academic writing, we like to have sources. That's that's kind of the, the anchor of our work. Sure. Um, and we need to have that in order to avoid the the great problem of, of either unsourced speculation or, of course, plagiarism. Um, and there is that you can make the case that these large language models are, among other things, huge exercises in plagiarism. That's uncredited. <laughs> Yeah, I know one of the first times I, I used it, I asked it to, um, uh, I forget the exact prompt, it was something like, um, write a poem about Christmas from an atheist point of view. Mm. And it came up very quickly with a very nice, uh, you know, a sensible uh, poem. I thought, well, is is this, you know, did it pull something from the web verbatim or part of it? Yeah. Was this uh, plagiarized? And I I submitted it to a plagiarism detection system and nothing came up. It was zero according to that particular product. So oh. it's, it's just amazing when, when you get down to it that uh, that it, it, it seems to be original in a lot of its uh, out, output. Well, that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's if, if you will, a kind of sarcastic view is that it's basically autocomplete in steroids. Uh, it's trying to imagine uh, or hallucinate or guess what the most likely uh, word is to follow another word and, and so mm -hmm. on. Um, so it is, it is in a sense, creating, uh, which uh, should make it pass a plagiarism detector. Uh, you know, they're, they're, this does run into some of the huge problems in a practical level, uh, quite a few uh, instructors and, and uh, scholars have been saying that they really like the idea of uh, using ChatGPT to, as I mentioned before, to reboot the assessment world and in order to make us question plagiarism. And I, I think this is great. The problem I have is that in the United States, at least, uh, we don't have a lot of writing situations where that kind of discussion can happen. And what I mean is we have... The majority of our faculty are adjuncts who are badly paid and scarcely supported, and they usually don't have the resources in order to be able to do what you just did of running things mm -hmm. through uh, uh, through a plagiarism detector and also to um, to teach students 
not just to teach them we want to develop your writing voice, but also to assess that deeply and thoroughly. If if you're if you're teaching several hundred students, uh, you, you're not going to have the time to be able to do that. Sure. Plus, we do have instructors who don't have the background in order to make that kind of assessment. And especially if you get writing across the curriculum, a lot of that is based on regurgitating facts, uh, right. and that's what people will look for. Uh, and and so that's tricky. But but at the same time, I. I've been playing with, as you know, I, I love simulations and games, both as, as as pedagogy and as expressions of human creativity. So I, I've been playing with something I saw from a business professor who uh, phrased a parameter. I had to find it for you. The parameter is about a paragraph long. It was very, very detailed. But basically, to have ChatGPT act as a game master for a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Um, and and ChatGPT had to provide the setting and then ask me questions so I would respond to them, and then it would update the setting as I acted on it. So the the game I asked it to create was one where I was the president of a university, and I, I gave it some, some details of the university, and it happily did this, and it presented me with a problem. A student group had a certain demand that I had to respond to it. So I, I responded to it in a way that I thought was pretty fair, and it then updated the situation and then took it further, and then I updated it further and updated it further, and then it gave me another challenge. Now, this is all fascinating. So then I, I restarted the simulation play, and I played as a terrible president, and it actually it developed things very carefully. It, uh, it, it showed what happened in my autocratic rule, um, and uh, it took it out very, very nicely, which is which is fascinating. Um, yeah. And and uh, this is something which I'd like to have my students do for them to build uh, various simulation games. Now, yeah, I was going to ask you how you've uh, handled AI in your classes. Um, to besides just you know talking about it, have you uh, given them assignments uh, or or have they used it uh, on the sly or what what have you what's been your experience so far? Well, I've, I've done a bit of this now. To, to be fair, the 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 classes that have I've been teaching have been completely relevant uh, to this. So uh, when the when ChatGPT three came out in late November, I was teaching a class on technology and innovation. Mm-hmm. So immediately it was perfect, and, and students were talking about it, and they had all kinds of views, and I had them research it and use it. One of them presented on it, and we had we had good discussions. Um, I did not forbid its use. Um, and, uh, this, now this is a graduate level class. Um, so the setting is a little different than from an undergrad. Uh, I had them write, uh, final, uh, fi- or had them make final projects, some of which were papers. Um, and I was able, because it was a small enough class, just 17 students, uh, I got to know the students fairly well during the semester and I could, I could read carefully and get a sense of it being their voice, especially since the final project lined up with their professional concerns. This semester, I'm teaching class on even better educational technology. Um, so the students are all very, very interested in it. Uh, one of them memorably told me that he thought that ChatGPT now, the feeling of that is like what it must have felt like when I first experienced the World Wide Web um, in the 1990s. And I, at times, I feel that uh, it, it has that that revolutionary potential and scope. Uh, the students have been frightened by it. Uh, they found it eerie and uncanny. Um, and the, throughout this semester, we'll be doing more and more with it. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, you, you see or you read um, things like, you know, this uh, generative AI is um, 
you know, just a whole new game changer and it's going to be as revolutionary as the internet or the World Wide web. And, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to imagine where it's going. It's, it seems to have exploded, uh, recent, uh, couple of years and, um, you know, how it's affected, it's going to be on business. Uh, is it going to enable startup companies to, um, you know, to uh, compete against Google. And you wonder how it's going to affect the whole uh, business plan of a company like Google, which makes all its uh, money on basically on advertising. And uh, what if you don't need to have advertising? What if, you know, you, you, the search engine just gives you the answer? You don't have to, you know, look at, uh, compare the results of a half a dozen links and pick out uh, the best answer. Um, you know, humans especially extroverts, which is about 60% of us, uh, are fond of conversation. And, uh, uh, you know, a conversational format is one that we're, we tend to be comfortable with, or we'll recognize it. Um, and in many ways, the, the catalog search uh, is an unfamiliar and awkward one. So I, I think you're right. If I, if I can circle back to a question you asked before, which I didn't answer, um, you were asking about it being a, the, these AI tools being black boxes. And I, I think in many ways this is true and this is a problem um, because what you're seeing is uh, giant companies that are fairly opaque, Microsoft, Google, for example, uh, undertaking these large projects. And then, uh, as some critics have said, inflicting them on the world um, without a lot of care. Now, OpenAI is much more open about this. They do have more conversations, but the code remains behind a, a box in, in part because they are they have that uh, belief that potentially ai could be a massively destructive force um now on the uh, and of course we have companies around the world that are developing ai china and the us are the two big countries for this canada and britain both punch above their weight um and i i think we also have a lot of scholarship published on this uh so I, one of the things i anticipate is that we will see several more generative ai applications appear and then more and then more and that they will branch out into different domains and different identities because if you take a look at the output of chat gpt when people say it's bland it, it usually is very bland I, I have to coax it into spicier writing but, right. but it's also it's bureaucratic and pr release ish and also politically very centrist because it's trying to be a kind of universal tool um and, and we're used to universal tools you know think about a web browser for example a microsoft word but but that's in a politically contentious time that's ultimately going to be insufficient for some users so I, i'm expecting for example a chinese business to crank out an ai that is a general purpose ai excuse me a, a general um uh you know question and answer tool but it's going to be oriented towards Xi Jinping thought. Um, I can uh, easily, easily imagine uh, a conservative Christian group producing one that would, for example, encourage you to believe in God in certain ways and will be more restrictive about certain forms of content. Uh, I could imagine a, an Indian business uh, producing one that lines up with Hindutva uh, values and, and so on. And, and then just narrower and narrower uh, functions as well. Um, and, and, you know, the ideas will leak out, the practice will will spread, uh, we'll have more and more academic work, more and more professionals on this, and then we'll, we'll see these AI firms just crop up everywhere. 
Um, and when I say firms, they won't all be companies. Some of these will be governmental, uh, explicitly, yeah. partially. Some will be nonprofit. Um, I mean, I'm waiting for religious organizations to have, you know, the, the Catholic GPT. Um, <laughs> uh, right, right. We're, we're going to need a tool like uh, maybe familiar with uh, Media Bias Fact Check uh, website where you can you can uh, see, you know, what, where does this journal fall on the uh, yeah. on the spectrum? And uh, we're going to need some way to rate uh, these systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's a that's a particular skill set. Uh, I've I've seen a few people on uh, on Twitter who are in poli sci um, ask ChatGPT a series of questions and they rate the answers according to some political science questionnaire for ideology and there are a bunch of these and say okay it ends up you know liberal centrist or whatever um, but that would be a great thing to have especially as we increasingly cite uh, cite sources or cite content. Um, you know there was the you probably saw this story a couple of days ago where uh, Vanderbilt University. Um, one of their senior administrators emailed the student body uh, about a school shooting. And in the at the end of the email was a tagline saying created by ChatGPT. Uh, I didn't I did miss that one. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, and it's, it's a dumb mistake. I mean, it's one of those Whoa. lessons. Why you reread or why you get someone else to read something that you wrote. But, um, but and they apologized and, you know, things come out of that but but it's an interesting question if who knows how much input from the humans went into editing that but i could read that email and see what kind of viewpoint it takes and it's it's not one that the national rifle association would be fond of for example um you know so i i think this is right we'll have to have that kind of assessment um i i think you know you're you're pointing also to the problem of truth value um, you know, because deep fakes are a thing, uh, oh, yeah. and better and better. And, and some of these may be completely benign. Um, if, uh, uh, so my new book, I've, I've created a bunch of art, AI art for it. I've had a lot of fun with that, uh, yeah. centering parameters and, and I use some of that art now and I'm, I'm happy to do so. But what happens when somebody else does that and they come up with a, and they, they put up on online, they put up a nice page that says anywhere she is on fire. And here's a picture of, you know, the campus and a flood or something like that. Um, and and then that becomes something that people can find on Google. Um, does that become, you know, the, the the real cover or a contested cover? Right. Uh, not not from malice, but just just, you know, from sheer interest, right? Much less I I'm waiting to see what happens as a range of actors start using this technology seriously. So think, for example, about uh, militaries. Um, you know, I, I had fun asking ChatGPT to give me strategies for counterinsurgencies. Uh, I gave it a bunch of different nations. I gave it different uh, strategic uh, frameworks and different issues. And it was very interesting, especially when we specified certain countries and it had data on, on these countries. Um, and then, what happens when you are in a battlefield and you are opposed by someone who's been using this? Do you have to have an anti-AI strategy because the <laughs> AI is different? Right. Think, think too about um, uh, businesses uh, asking uh, generative AI to produce strategies. You know, how do I defeat my competitor? Uh, how do I deal with a successful new product? How do I fend off disruption? Um, plus. Yeah making stuff you know give me a business plan give me an ad copy give me an internal memo help me generate a quarterly report 
um, yeah, this I, I think in many ways this starts to work its way throughout society in all kinds of ways. Um, at some point, I think we will stop remarking on it. Uh, it'll just be part of of how we work. This is this is all by the way, assuming that that we see the productive quality growth continue to grow, uh, that we that it doesn't stall out, uh, that it doesn't collapse. Uh, or it's successfully regulated out of existence, uh, which which could happen. Um, yeah. So speaking of regulation, I was uh, that occurred to me. You know, is are we going to see some sort of regulation? But I think it's uh, doubtful, or it's going to take a long time, and we haven't even been able to uh, regulate the you know the the, the Fang companies, Google, and yes. you know uh, Facebook, Meta, or whatever. Um, so I think it's going to be a long time in coming. Maybe we have to help the the government uh, take better advantage of uh, of ai to to help them do what they're supposed to be doing well I, I i think this is all completely true and and if history is any guide we can expect this to unfold in a couple of ways uh I mean, one of the reasons why um the federal government has not been very effective in regulating giant tech companies is because of really effective lobbying from them um if we look back in time uh, one of the weird great stories in American history is the long, decades-long struggle of regulating the railroads. And that led to similar amounts of lobbying, uh, huge delays, and also open corruption. You know, railroad companies just pumping cash at, at, at different congressmen and uh, senators. Um, you know, we should expect more of this kind of lobbying and potential corruption, depending on, on where you go, as companies uh, manage, you know, try to fend this off. Plus, there's also the problem of, of elected officials and bureaucrats simply just not being able to keep up with this. Because they have yeah. busy schedules and almost none of them have any professional background of this material. Um, you know, we've seen just how how Congress struggles with basic web technology. Um I mean, uh, plus you're going to have people within governments who want to use this in other ways. I mean, think, think for example, about spy agencies, uh, excuse me, intel the intelligence community, um, <laughs> uh, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of desiderata. I mean, you know, if they say, please give me a, uh, generate a campaign that lets me destabilize this province in another country. Um, you know, how do you, uh, so right now for everyone in the audience if you're in the intelligence community this is an interesting skill set to acquire um and it may be that nsa um you know cia fbi quietly behind closed doors tells senators and representatives please don't regulate this that hard we need to have access to this for national security purposes right right i mean it's it, i i think the other thing to keep in mind is especially watching google flub their rollout so bad yeah. um i was that was just I mean, what did it cost them like a hundred billion dollars in share value um yeah and, uh, so one of the things that we should expect is just like with any major new technology just like the mobile mobile device world just like the web we should expect to see some businesses bogged down uh get marginalized or disappear new businesses appear old businesses get new life um and we should also expect new social behaviors. Uh, so you think about the social media influencer figure, uh, who we like to mock, but are definitely definitely do have influence that we know. Um, you know, will we have similar figures pop up around AI? Maybe AI designers and programmers, or maybe people who are just really good at wrangling them. Um, I, I think we're going to see this 
I'm not even talking about education yet. Um, I mean, I, I think we'll we'll see this whipsaw um, populations as they either meet this with dread or try to figure out a way to use it themselves or, or do both. Uh, I mean, I think we all know people who talk too loudly uh, on cell phones, then complain about other people talking too loudly on cell phones. Um, so, I, I, I mean, if this proceeds, we could see that kind of level of of cultural, political, social uh, disruption. Uh, and all of this hits a world which is already a bit seething and chaotic. Yeah, I'll tell you. The, you know, on the potential positive outcome here, I, I see uh, a future where uh, we can finally get to this sort of holy grail of education, personalized education. Why couldn't an AI, you know, Absolutely. you know, be dedicated? Every student gets their own personal guidance and, and education uh, using, uh, you know, online um, education. Um, very much so. Uh, I mean, one of the things that I've been talking about for years is the idea that uh, if we can follow Neil Stevenson's great invention in the Diamond Age, uh, we could see an AI attached to an individual learner at some point in their life. And then that AI, depending on its configuration, has the ability to absorb a lot of data about that learner, uh, their curricula, uh, their performance, and then can also interact with the world around them. Uh, and right now, I'm working on a few different languages, including Spanish. It would be great if my if it's living in my phone, and as I walk down the streets in my town, which is very, very diverse, if it can pick up any traces of spoken Spanish to play them back to me later on from my own you know, listening and testing out ability. Uh, when I watch a, a program and there's spoken Spanish on it, pull that out um, and then play it back to me. But, but then imagine I'm doing this at age 15, right? It then is able to, to some degree get my get the information about my school, depending on the arrangement of that, about how I do in classes. Uh, and then I take it to college. And if I go to a Philadelphia area college, for example, how will that fit in with the enterprise level AI? Uh, will universities and colleges insist on giving students their own AI? Um, you know, they, will they have a, a special bot that's just aimed at them? Uh, mm -hmm. And will will it be a rite of passage to switch from one bot to another? Uh, and then does the bot have further and further capabilities? Does it is it, for example, a good tool for me to use in producing stuff to the web? Do I basically journal to the bot um, and it publishes a, a blog post, or does it help me take photographs and record audio and edit? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can I, I? I gave this example from a blog post. Uh, you know, can I say? Uh, prop up my laptop or my tablet or my phone in my kitchen uh, and say, okay, just record me for the next hour as I make breakfast and do various things. And then I want you to record that uh, bot and I want you to upload the best parts to Instagram uh, and upload in chunks no longer than 60 seconds and do so over a three hour period. Um, you know, we can, and of, of course, we get, we get the old promise of the intelligent agent. Uh, if yeah. I can in uh please hunt down for me uh the best political news about temple university in the city of philadelphia um and then sort it by x y and z parameters and please display it uh out loud through audio um mm -hmm. that's right about here uh, yeah yeah uh, it, it can really become that personal assistance my assistance too weak a term i don't think we have a good term for this right do, do you remember the uh well gosh 15 years ago apple talking about the personal assistant when they first came out with the uh one of their handheld devices and probably the newton or something but they had this yeah. futuristic you know 
uh, notebook that uh, had this uh, this avatar and looked like a human uh, answering all their questions and remembering all their dates and whatnot. I mean, we're way beyond that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the, the uh, I mean, we we could be at that level if we can make all of this work. Uh, I mean, if large language models are good enough, and, and let me rephrase that. If enough of us perceive that they are good enough to work, um, you know, one, one day last week I was looking at a CNN article uh, about uh, realtors using ChatGPT to generate realtor copy, <laughs> uh, and then in the next tab, a friend of mine who's who's brilliant was just lacerating ChatGPT for all of these problems. I was trying to decide between the two of these. Um, my friend was absolutely right; his criticisms were spot on. But then these realtors, who are not computer scientists, found this to work well enough. Yeah. And I, I don't know if, if, you know, I'm assuming they typed in something like, describe attractively a house with three bedrooms, blah, 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 right. blah. I, I don't know their parameters. I don't know how they edited the output afterwards. They may have just hit print and run. Um, if it's good enough, that's often a, a low enough bar for us to adopt stuff. That's right. That's right. The one thing I haven't heard people mention yet, although uh, maybe it's escaped me, you know, that there's been an out uproar about the cost uh, in terms of uh, electricity and doing Bitcoin, you know, mining Bitcoin. And and a lot of that tech, a lot of those kinds of uh, hardware have now been, you know, transitioned to to generate uh, AI. Um, on the one hand, that 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 could, could be an issue. Uh, but also what I'm reading is that once the uh, training has been done, you basically can compress the intelligence down to something that can fit, you know, on a cell phone. Yeah. And, and uh, so I don't know what, what you know about that or if that's, uh, um, you know, something that you're looking for. Well, this is this is consistent with with technology for the past 200 years and definitely with with digital technology. Uh, and I, I, you know, just, just, you know, we keep seeing this pattern of increasing power, increasing scope and decreasing cost as well as decreasing size. Uh, you know, when you get these complaints about phones that are too fat, right. Uh, right. Um, you know, we, we keep pushing that and, and we haven't hit Moore's law. I mean, we're really on the oh, edge. Yeah. Still, we still haven't broken it yet, you know, uh, it still proceeds. So, I mean, one of the reasons I think there will be more and more instances of uh, generative AI is going to be because of uh, its increasing use. Uh, sorry, it's increasing ease of production on the production side, and it's increasing uh, use ability on the consumer side. Um, and then that keeps uh, that keeps advancing. Um, I mean, it's it's. It's fascinating to think about too how this plugs into other technologies. So you think I mentioned before, you know, having my personal assistant or whatever we call it, um, moderating my my social media output. Um, but I, I I've all, I also mentioned asking Midjourney and others to create art for me in certain specifications. But we could we could just hit fast forward a little bit on the world uh, display and imagine what this is like a year or two from now. Uh, I would love to be able to uh, have the have an AI create music for me according to certain parameters. And we do have software that can do that in a very basic level. Google has one mm -hmm. of these small clips. But for me to say, okay, give me another symphony um, that's very Beethoven-like, uh, <laughs> traces of Wagner, 
Um, and then go a little further forward uh, to video creation. I mean, for me, one of the models I'm looking for is where we can create a television episode or a feature film on spec. Um, so, you know, I, I, I want to see the Philadelphia story, but starring Rod Murray instead. And I want it as though directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> I have the machines churn and cough up something like that. Right? Um, think, think about computer games, too. I mean, yeah. it would be fantastic to be able to ask a AI to generate a computer game that's, that's you know, according to your your desires. Um, and when we look at the bigger media, when we look at XR, you know, the combination of augmented reality and virtual reality, we were already using AI in those to generate some backgrounds to, because it's it's so difficult to generate content for those. I mean, imagine more and more of that. Please generate for me an XR level that's a lunar base like the classic Jerry Anderson UFO TV series in the 1970s, right? Just pull on my helmet and say, there I go. Um, I mean, this one of the things this does is it's it's going to give us another round of the classic cultural crisis that we get when everyone invents a new new technology. Um, that's right. Yeah, I, I printing mean, press, television, you name it. You know, exactly. And one of the things I love, I was when I was when I used to study copyright pretty intensely. One of the things I loved was when Congress is working on the 1909 Copyright uh, Act, and they finished it, and then movies came out. And and there was this interesting question of how do you how do you situate film under copyright? And one side said, well, a movie is is a drama, it's a play that you're watching, so that's how it is. And she said, no, 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 literally, film is photography, especially silent film, right? It's a series of photographs, so it falls under that, right? You know, um, but then it makes us think about what is authorship. And print did that. Uh, you know what I mean? If if you're if you're handwriting, your handwriting tends to be distinctive. But if it's all in movable type, you lose that marker. Um, and if you don't control print uh, through whatever mechanism, then people can print whatever they like, and authorship becomes weird. Uh, what happens to information overload too? I mean, right now we suffer from too much information. Well, we can just replace content farms with bots right now, and then generate huge amounts of stuff. How do we cope with that? I mean, it's it's the as you said, it's the debate we went over when when um, when print became large, right? and we're going to be doing that again, um, yeah. and that changes us in different ways. You know, one thing occurred to me that I haven't heard uh, much talk about, especially when it comes to the copywriting uh, or um, you know, using other people's uh, art without having the uh, mm-hmm. intellectual property rights. Uh, yeah. For a long time, there's been a technology to embed a uh, invisible, um, co- you know, uh, watermark in photographs. Even if you take the photograph and scan it, rescan mm-hmm. it, it can still pick up this code. I wonder why it's, people stop using that. It's not, it's not, I guess it's not routinely used because I certainly haven't used it, but the certain, that technology is certainly there. We could do that. That's one. That's one way of maintaining uh, authorship. If we wanted to do that, yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we've heard of uh, you know artists that paint putting the um, uh, small pieces of their hair for their DNA to mark the ink. You know, to put in the ink that they sign with. No, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I've got. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but uh, but you know there may be new uh, forms of, of this as well. Uh, there is a um, a fascinating uh, short story. Um, by a Canadian author, and I'm just blanking on it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to pull it out to make sure I, I have it right. Where um, it's a world where deep fakes really take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
problem. So they uh, create, it's called Noon at the Anti-Library by Carl hmm. Schrock. Um, and so to to control that, uh, the one group comes up with the idea of creating a blockchain-backed record of truth, of everything that needs to be true, uh, like <laughs> geographical locations, biographical data. And because it's blockchain-based, right, it's it's putatively mm -hmm. unhackable, and everyone can right. take a look. Um, I, I'm not recommending this as a solution, but it's a, it's an example of the kind of creative uh, solution that we might see. If if you if I can go back to my literary background for a minute, if you want, um, there's a uh, a fascinating history to Samuel Taylor Coleridge's *Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner*. In the second and third editions of the of the poem, he decided to make it look older. Uh, so one of the things he added was marginal notes. And, and the marginal notes are useless. They, they don't tell you anything. They're they're really irrelevant. But what's funny is he did this circa 1805, and and they are uh, they're designed to make things look antique. Well, that's because four five centuries before, people started using that to cope with early modern information overload. So if you're reading a book, oh my god, how can I cope with this? Well, they put little stickers in the margins in order to point you to it. Um, <laughs> You know, like if you if you look at a lot of religious texts, for example, published in the period, they'll have marginal notes explaining not just what happened in this part of the text, but also how you should think about it. Um, so, you know, these things change over time and we we may see more of that. I mean, imagine, for example, being able to have an augmented reality tool that lives in your glasses or your uh, context, however we invite envision that. And then that gives you its assessment of what you're looking at and its reality or its truth yeah. value. Um, you know, we, this is time for a lot of innovation. Well, you know, uh, you, what you just touched on reminds me, I'm looking at your bookcase behind you and, uh, you know, what do you think the history of, you know, the future of books are print books? Because right now, in fact, if somebody gives me a book, I find it much more convenient. And because of my declining eyesight, I, I get the Kindle version of it and I, I read it on yeah. my, on my yeah. tablet. I mean, in the yeah. future, when we want to read anything, we we could have the uh, the bot AI bot, you know, uh, speak it to us or make it appear on our tablet. So well, what's going to happen to the book? It's going to be disintermediated or whatever the book publishing, I would guess, down the line. And then publishers are notoriously very slow to to move on on with the uh, technology. Well, pub, uh, print book publishers are, are are often very, very nervous. Uh, they are scarred by the experience of what happened to the music industry uh, in the threat of Napster. Um, and they also, I mean, it's a business that tends to have very, very low profit margins and to be um, very much at the whim of taste as well as politics. Uh, you can see, for example, the current fracas about the uh, Puffin Books decision to edit Roald Dahl's stories, um, uh, mostly for political purposes uh, this week. Um, but it, I'm with you on this, too. If you look at the wall behind me, uh, I love books. And I'm surrounded by books I'm in my office right now. It's a, it's a small maze of bookshelves. Um, and my eyes are, are having increasing problems. So for me, I love being able to use an ebook, Kindle or otherwise, because I can increase the font, as you say. Mm -hmm. um, but, but we can take this further still. Uh, for example, um, text-to-speech tools are getting better and better. Apple just released uh, narration, uh, AI-backed narration, uh, for some uh, print books as audiobooks. Um, so it would be awesome just if someone hands me a print book, I can say, you know, to my assistant, please turn this into audio so I can listen to it when I'm 
walking the dog when I'm cooking dinner or, yeah. um, or to, to do still more with it, um, you know, to flash text on a surface, either literally, you know, projected onto a wall, uh, or again, if I'm wearing uh, glasses or contact lenses or a headset to display it superimposed over the world I'm looking at, it'd be great to do that. For example, when I'm riding the Metro, um, yeah, just yeah. to see in front of me, or you and I are in a plane, one of the most boring and claustrophobic experiences. Wouldn't it be <laughs> awesome to be able to have the, the text in front of us, right? Um, and then, of course, to bring in things like Kindle is very good about having annotations and about having dictionary responses to be able to expand that as well. Um, but then, you know, to go further, um, to add to the text, uh, to generate spin for the text, uh, or Naturally, what we're going to see a lot of is summarize, uh, summarization yeah. of text. I mean, when I mentioned early modern information overload, one of the first things that happened was people came up with uh, shortened versions of texts. That's where the encyclopedia comes from, based on the British book, The Cyclopedia. Uh, and the idea is just to be able to have compressed versions of this. Once when I was teaching at a small college in Louisiana, I went to a new bookstore in town and... Uh, it was new. I didn't know it very well. And I, I, I found a couple of books I wanted to look at and found a chair and sat down. And the chair was resting against a big pillar. And I didn't look behind me. I just sat there. I was looking at the books. And behind me, I heard these weird sounds. I heard people whispering, and then they would swear, and then they would scurry away. And I, I didn't know what this meant. I would hear, oh, God, and they take off. What could this be? So I finally got up, and I walked around the pillar. And the other side of the pillar was the monarch notes and cliff notes. Uh, display. And what was behind me were different students who came up and thought that I was basically scoping them out, right? Trying to prevent them from uh, uh, from from cheating by by using <laughs> regiments. Um, and it was it was it was pretty funny, but we should expect, you know, a, a lot of that right now. Readers Digest condensed versions of books, you know, right. some handsy war and peace, and you drag it down to 10,000 words. Um, and then to do the same with other media, to do the same with uh, podcasts, to do the same with yeah. TV shows, to um, you know, give me Breaking Bad, but I would like a half running time, please. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and then well, it's funny. I, I guess you're, you may be familiar with the fact that they can, I forget what the software is called, but uh, they can take a sample of your voice or my voice. Mm -hmm. And using that as a model can then have it have you or I read any book. So perhaps I'll be able to uh, download Universities on Fire or other books uh, with your booming, uh, sonorous voice. Well, that's that's very kind of you, Mr. Podcast. Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, actually, my previous book, Academia Next, has an audio book, and they didn't give me the option to uh, to read no. it. <laughs> and, and it was it was weird to listen to for a bit. I, I I thought they did a pretty good job, but it was it's a little uncanny it, it's like it's like reading your account of a dream you had 20 years ago now that sounds <laughs> um but yeah to well I, I this is something that that has has frustrates me greatly in terms of uh gps uh car navigation uh which only has a limited set of voices so if you want booming voices i want my gps to give me directions in the voice of brian blessed uh or or, or the lovely helen Mirren. Um, <laughs> And, or, or you know, if I'm if I'm visiting you in in uh, in your fair town, to have Rod Murray narrate my way across Delaware. <laughs> um, I mean, that, see, it's one of the potentials. Is a huge amount of creativity, and and let me just go back to the earlier point. Um, there's the like with any other 
medium that appears. There's the potential for exploiting creative people en masse. Um, I mean, I'm I'm expecting this to happen to me. I'm ex- I, I know, I mean, I publish a lot of stuff online, so I know a lot of my stuff has been indexed and hoovered up by large language models, um, and I wish they'd pay me for it. Um, the flip side is this is going to make creativity easier for people. Uh, I can't draw at all. I'm I'm legendarily horrible at it. Um, so I can instead work with um, uh, Stable Diffusion or Crayon and generate images, which I find yeah. exhilarating. Uh, and yeah, it would, in a sense, it would be better for me to pay an artist to do this. Um, not everyone can afford to do that. Um, and you might not get the results you want, and then you have to move on to another artist and so on. Whereas I can ask Stable Diffusion to cough up a whole bunch of these in a row. Um, right. Same with writing. I mean, how uh, I, I write for a living, partially. Um, I, I love writing, but I know for a lot of people that's a struggle. What a what a great tool for creativity to be able to to empower you to write more. Um, I, I have two analogies. I haven't shared this with anybody yet, so this is this is a first. And I, I'm going to blog this at some point. But um, I, I was reminded, as other people were, of of the history of the calculator. When, when ChatGPT began to get a lot of attention, uh, you think of a tool that lets you cheat if you in one view, um, and that if it may teach students too much so that they're able to use that, but they don't know the the processes underneath it. Um, and we went through that when you and I were kids, right, in the in the 70s and 80s. Uh, you know, schools outlawing the calculator and then eventually figuring out how to make peace with it and how to use it. Um, and I think a lot of generative AI is in that position right now, where uh, <clears throat> it gets to the point where you can, you know, we may end up on the other side of that, where there are licensed generative AI uh, that you buy from your high school textbook store. Um, but the other the other analogy that comes to mind uh, is the mad scientist's unreliable assistant, um, <laughs> the Igor uh, who comes in. Uh, or Igor in Young yeah. Frank, um, that that can help you, but isn't always necessarily going to be there. Um, or it may help you in a way that's too creative. Um, and so you, as the mad scientist, have to curse your Igor and make sure that you get the right thing out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, for me, that those two analogies really cover a lot of ground, um, and I, I commend them to your audience. <laughs> well, thanks for that. You know, I, I this has been a wide-ranging fascinating discussion and uh i want to give you some time to tell our audience when your book is coming out i think it's still pre-order uh it is right now university is on fire is uh, a book about the next 75 years of higher education in the age of climate crisis uh, so it takes a look at colleges and universities worldwide and how they can respond in different ways from research and teaching town gown relations pedagogy um, as well as what happens to physical campus and what role academia should play in this planetary civilizational struggle um, the book is available for pre-order it is due out in the last week of march from johns hopkins university press both in hardcover and also in uh, ebook format uh, I'm doing a, a tour right now, going to different places, both physically and virtually, to talk about the book. And I'd be delighted to uh, to come to you, wherever you are, to tell you about the book, because I, I think this is one of the most important, if not the most important issue facing the world. And I think higher education can and should play a serious role in addressing it. Absolutely. 
Well, Brian, I want to thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. It's uh, uh, we have to do this more often. I think I should touch base with you at least once a year. You do you do so much, and uh, it's always uh, enlightening having a yeah. talk with you. I agree absolutely. It's a real pleasure. You're a great host, and uh, I I just welcome each time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the talk with Brian. I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot more from him. And don't forget to check out his his new book, Universities on Fire. You'll see in my show notes links to other interviews on my podcast and, uh, and a link to a way to buy his book. Stay tuned for the full song, Utopian Prince. So until next time, have a great week. it for today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give Rod feedback. You can leave comments on his blog or send email to rod at rodspulsepodcast.com. The preceding audio commentary is the product of the author, Dr. Rodney Murray, and does not represent the official viewpoint of any other institution or company.